Welcome to the Brevard Christian Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you with sermons, stories, and interviews that will challenge you to grow in your faith as we take steps closer to Him. Enjoy. The lady's name is uh, Bridget Gabriel. She was one of uh, four panelists who I guess were experts in the respective fields. And she and these others were talking about the bombings that had taken place in Benghazi. They had an open microphone and one of the women came to the microphone to ask a question, really make more of a statement than ask a question. She was dressed in Muslim garb and her point was simply that the majority of Muslims are peace-loving people. And you could tell she didn't appreciate being associated with the radicals since the majority of us are peace-loving. Well, you could tell, and if you know much about Bridget Gabriel, she almost jumped out of her skin. She leans forward from the table into the microphone in front of her, and she says, you know what, you're the first person here today. We've been talking about American policy. We've been talking about loss of lives but you're the first person to bring up religion. And since you've brought it up, let me comment. And she started rattling off statistics. She said, it's true. Uh, most intelligent agencies will tell you that only 15 to 25%, sometimes it's hard to nail down, of Islamic people can be considered radicals. But if you take the world population of Islam, that, that leaves you with anywhere from 180 to 300 plus million people who've made a commitment dedicated to their lives to eradicate the kind of life that we have here in the West. And, he, and, and she went on to say that even though the majority of people are peace-loving, without being rude, they're really irrelevant. She said, if you knew your history, you would know that before the start of World War II, most Germans could be considered peace-loving people but the majority of Germans were irrelevant because the Nazis came with the power and control. In World War II, 60 million people lost their lives, 14 million of them in concentration camps, 6 million of them just Jewish people in concentration camps. Right after World War II, most people who lived in the Soviet Union could be considered accurately peace-loving people. But you know what? They weren't in control. A guy named Joseph Stalin was in control. And as a result of a lot of his campaigns that he enacted on his own people, millions, sometimes 20, 30 million, the estimates go even higher, of people, of their own people lost their lives. There's a guy named Chairman Mao in China. At the time, most Chinese could be considered peace-loving people. But again, she leans into the microphone and says, but the majority of people were irrelevant because Chairman Mao was in control. He had the power. And as a result, some estimates go as high as 100 million of his own people were put to death. Before World War II started, the Japanese, as far as the majority are concerned, can be considered peace-loving people. But the majority of Japanese were irrelevant because the Japanese who were in control and had the power wreaked havoc across the Southeast Asian countries and killed millions of people, mostly by bayonet and shovels. She said on 9-11 here in the United States, 2.3 million people in the United States could be considered Muslim at that time. They were by far the majority, and you could call them peace-loving people. 
but they were irrelevant because a handful of people got some planes and brought down the Twin Towers. About this time in her presentation, the applause reached the place where she couldn't talk anymore because everybody pretty much couldn't take exception with the point she was making. And the point is simply this. It doesn't make any difference how you feel and it doesn't make any difference what the numbers are. It's who's in control that's going to determine what happens. And it's a point worth considering because in your life and in my life, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be offensive here, but it really doesn't make any difference what you feel about yourself. Jesus said you can know a tree by its fruit. And at the end of the day, you have to ask the question, what have I done? And you know what determines what you do with your life? Who's in control of your life? The Bible would say it this way. You can tell by the way you live who's your king. So we've had a short series looking at different kings in the Bible to better understand this idea of who's in control, right? Because who is in control determines the way you live. And the way you live, at the end of the day, is what's important. So this morning, to finish out our series on the kings, we're going to look at two kings. We're going to look at just a few verses in Matthew, the second chapter, very briefly because it's such a well-known passage. It's going to give us an example of a really bad king and the best king. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, here's what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. That's all, I, that's all I want to read because it lays out for us two kings here, King Herod and the one who was born king of the Jews. Let's, let's think about King Herod. He's called King Herod the Great, Herod the Great. He's not the same Herod you're going to read over in the book of Acts. In fact, depending on where you are in the book of Acts, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, it's a different Herod from the later chapters, Herod Agrippa, that you read, read when Paul gives his defense. This Herod, Herod the Great, was in all likelihood referred to as Herod the Great because he, he was really a good politician. He was a great administrator. He had some great building programs. But what he's really known for is being great as far as being an awful, awful man. And you can substantiate this just with, just with the Bible story because when he hears about this baby being born, he, he fakes interest saying that he wants, you know the story, that he wants to worship. And so when the wise men, when the magi find him, tell him where he is so he can come and worship them, when in reality he wanted to come and do away with them. Well, when the Magi figured out because they were warned and went home in a different way, and Herod figured out that they weren't going to come back, you remember what he did. He calculated based on what they had told him how old the child might be, and so he sent out a decree that all the children in that whole region, two, ages, two, two years and younger, all the male children, should be put to the sword, should be put to death. And commentators will tell you that that. It wasn't a region where there was a heavy population. So it probably wasn't a massacre of hundreds and hundreds, maybe just a few dozen. But think about that. A few dozen babies massacred. Why? Because this guy is paranoid about somebody taking his throne. Well, historians outside the Bible also tell us that his favorite wife, he had more than one wife, and his favorite wife he put to death because he was afraid that she was going to take the throne away from him. 
And not only did he put her to death, he put her mother to death. I guess it was a package deal. I don't know. Put her to death, put her mother to death, and also two of her sons he put to death. And he had another wife who had a son that was, I, I don't know, becoming too politically active, and that bothered him too. So he had him put to death so that the emperor of Rome that he had to answer to is actually quoted by historians as saying, talking about Herod the Great, you're better off being Herod's pig than you are being Herod's son. Why? Because he was just that kind of guy. Okay, that, that, that's probably enough to give you a flavor of what kind of king that we're talking about here. What I want to draw attention to is what the Bible says. What the Bible says here about King Herod, I mean, we're just in the first three verses. And one of the things it says is when he finds out that there's been born this king of the Jews, it says he's disturbed. But that's not all the Bible says. The Bible says he's disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And, and I'll be real honest with you. For a long time, that phrase really bothered me because I'm thinking to myself, these are Jewish people. Shouldn't they be looking forward to the coming Messiah? Shouldn't they, when they hear this news, born king of the Jews, shouldn't they be like, hey, I wonder where this is. Can we go out and worship? Can we sell? No, no. It, the king's up. I understand that. He's a paranoid, awful man. But why is everybody else? And then, it, then it, you, you probably got this a long time ago. But it wasn't until recently it hit me. If I were living in North Korea today under dictator Kim, and somebody did something to bother him, that would bother me. You know why it would bother me? Because life is tough enough when he's in a good mood, right? And if somebody's going to mess with him and get him in a bad mood, it's kind of like, oh, no, what's going to happen to the rest of us if our king gets messed up? Listen, I think there's a principle here, and I don't want to dwell on it that long because I think we already get this. If you don't have the right king... Oh, you, you may, you, there may be a reason why, and, and by the way, uh, you, your king doesn't have to be a person. It can be your health. It can be wealth. It can be, it can be friendships. It can, it can be all sorts of stuff. Whatever it is that's most important to you in your life. You know, the Bible says that, that sin, there's, there's pleasures associated with, them, with sin, then, and they last for a season. Whatever it is that, that, that you put on that throne, so to speak, whatever it is that you make your king will ultimately let you down. It's, it's, it's like that proverbial question. How's that working out for you? Right, for a while, for a season. But ha have you noticed this? I mean, I mean, I don't want to take too much time on this, but, but haven't you noticed this? There's so many things that, man, if I just get this, you know, I'm going to be so filled, fulfilled. You know, I get the new position. I, I, I get that amount of money that I've always wanted to have. And you get that amount of money or you get that position or, or, or you know, you win the game. And, and then it's like, okay, what's next? You know, you know, it's kind of like, I, I just thought life would be perfect if it finally came. And it's kind of like, nope, 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 it's not perfect. You've got to set a new goal. you got to, you, 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 right? And, and to me, the obvious, the obvious illustration of this is whatever it is we put on that throne chair, right? Whatever it is that we put at the center of our life. And, and let's just pull, a, you know, some really popular ones. You know, pe people want to be famous. They want everybody to know their name. They want to have an extreme amount of wealth. Well, let's, let's just go to the extreme. Who's the most famous people in the world? Who are the wealthiest people in the world? Are they the most well-rounded, most satisfied, happy people you've ever wanted to see? Are they the most messed up group of people that <laughs> commit suicide left and right and go to their therapist every day? You, you understand what I'm saying? If that kind of stuff brings fulfillment, where's the fulfillment? I, I'm telling you, it's because, it's because whoever your king is determines the way you live. And at the end of the day, it's the way you live. Sure. You got the wrong king. You know this. I know this. Here's the point. 
We know people who don't know this. We've got relatives that don't know this. We work with people that don't know this. There's a better answer. You got the wrong king, you're in trouble. But there is a king who's king of kings and lord of lords, and he is the only one who deserves to be your king. He's the only one that people need to be their king. And how is he introduced to us here in these, just these three verses? What does it say? He is born king of the Jews. Now, does that, does that phrase bother you? Does that phrase jump out at you? I hadn't thought about it because I've read it forever, but when I stop and think about it a minute, it's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If a king and queen have a little boy and it's their first boy, he's going to be king someday. When he's born, you don't call him king. You call him a prince, Right? He doesn't become king until dad dies or he gets to the point where dad's going to step down from the throne and hand the throne over to his son. And then, then after the service and everything, you crown him king, right? So why does the Bible use this phrase, he's born king of the Jews? I really think the Bible's trying to emphasize the fact that you've never seen a king like this. It's talking about the uniqueness of Jesus. One of the things in the midst of all Jesus' teachings that you find throughout the Gospels that the Bible records for us, time and time again, one of the things that the Bible keeps emphasizing is the uniqueness of Jesus. He made claims that nobody else ever made. He made statements and did things that nobody else ever did. Because one of the things, I mean, I mean, behind all the teaching and behind everything else, one of the things that the Bible is trying to communicate to us is, He's no ordinary king. He's no ordinary person. He's somebody that, that you've never thought of before. He's above and beyond this world. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, John chapter 5, verse 36, and John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, Jesus said, if you have a problems in believing my message and understanding me, just look at the miracles I perform. Look at the miracles, and after looking at the miracles, believe. Well, what, what was he saying? He said, I want to give you proof. Why do I need to give you proof? Because he's saying outlandish things that nobody ever said before. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. You, you can have life in my name. He said some things that are kind of like, well, that'd be great if it was true. I wonder if I can believe it's true. Yeah, you can believe it's true. Why? Look at the miracle. What, what, what kind of miracles did Jesus do? Did he did the kind of, was he doing the kind of things that other people could do? No. He was doing such totally exceptional things that sometimes, again, you may not have this problem, but sometimes I read too fast. And I go through Mark, the fourth chapter, and I see, okay, they're, they're on the sea, and the sea is in a storm, and the disciples are all upset, and they wake Jesus up, and he calms the storm, and I keep on reading. But I go back, and I look at it again, and wait, wait a minute, a lot of these guys were fishermen. They spent much of their life on the sea, and they're afraid they might die. This must be some amazing storm, right? And they go, and they wake up Jesus, and it's kind of like, don't you care that we die, right? And Jesus comes out with one word, peace. Here's, here's what it says. This is the reason I love it in Mark, the fourth chapter. It doesn't say the storm calmed down. In fact, if, if you could look at the original language, the words used there, it's like a raging storm. And as soon as he said that word, it didn't calm down. It went from raging storm to a piece of glass. It's like no waves at all. It's, it's, not, it's not this, oh, it's finally calming down. I'm glad Jesus did something. It's like this goosebumps all over you because it's like, whoa, what just happened here? <laughs> you know, just, just a second ago, <laughs> we were in a hurricane, and now it's like, it, it's like a, 
And they turn to each other, and it's like, I mean, these guys who've seen so much, it's like, who is this man? Right? The disciples are asking that question because the miracles, I mean, he, he didn't just open the eyes of blind people. He opened the eyes of blind people who'd never seen, they were born blind, right? He stopped funeral processions, brought people back to life. He called his friend Lazarus out of the grave. He himself brought himself back to life after the flogging, after the crucifixion, after all of that. He's proving time and time again that somebody above and beyond this world has entered into this world and he's proving it by doing things that don't happen in this world. You know, never, 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 I have to say this to myself, never shy away from the miracles in Scripture. I know a lot of people have, a, have difficulty accepting the miraculous. Just, just can, can I throw this in just real quick? Some people fancy themselves as being too rational to believe in miracles. These things, you know, scientifically, these things don't happen. Well, those very people that fancy themselves as being too rational and say these things can't happen, that same logic would prevent you from believing any new scientific discoveries, wouldn't it? Because according to science, it hasn't happened yet, therefore it can't happen. Do you, do you see, see the problem with thinking like that? Listen, the, the fact of the matter is we have evidence that supports they really happen, and if if they really happen, then that means there's more to life than this life because these things don't happen in this life, right? So what does that mean? Wrong king, bad life. Right king, whoa. What are the implications of having the right king? Man, we, we don't have time to go into all this, but I want, I want to take a little bit of time. I want to talk about something that we only make reference to from time to time. What's in store for us who've made Jesus our king? King of kings, Lord of lords, he's our king. You, you know what that means? means we have something waiting for us that you can't even imagine. Last two chapters of the book, book of Revelation, the description of the new Jerusalem, heaven. Man, it's a beautiful description, isn't it? Don't, don't you love reading about that? Uh, the, the streets. What are the streets made out of? Gold. Tell me something else about these gold streets. They're transparent. Okay, make up your mind. Are they transparent or are they gold? Which one? Yeah, which one, right? Well, what, what's the idea here? You get what's going on. I hope you get what's going on. We're trying to put into words... And we're trying to describe something that you can't really describe because it's just too amazing. In fact, I, 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 I want to talk about that just a little bit more. But before I do, I want us to go back to the Old Testament for just a minute. Because in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6, we're introduced to this, to this uh, principle, this concept that, that the Hebrews used often. If you can't describe something because it's too wonderful, it's too great, what you would do is you would move down. So, so if, if something was so fantastic here that I can't can't describe the event, I might describe the background of the event. Well, if that was too wonderful and I can't describe that, then I, then I might go to the larger setting. I keep on moving down until I finally get to something that I can put into words. And when I put that into words, if you had a Hebrew background, you would understand that, oh, oh, it's, it's not just that this is wonderful, then all that stuff that he didn't describe must have been so wonderful that he couldn't put it into Well, Isaiah chapter 6 there's a great example of this. Isaiah says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Has that, has that ever jumped out at you? Why in the world are we going to the train of his robe? I mean, if he saw a, a physical presentation of God, a theophany, why doesn't he describe God? Because he can't. Why doesn't he describe the grandeur? Because he can't. Why doesn't he describe the throne? Because he can't. He's moving on down the list until he finally gets down to, I can't even describe his clothing. Let's go with the train. You know what the train is, right? 
It's, it's, the part, it's part of the royal robe that trails behind that you drag on the ground. And the longer the train, the more impressive the king, right? And everybody knows that. So it's kind of like, okay, let's move on down to something I can describe. Here's the train. You know how long that train was? The longer the train, the more impressive. It went from the throne all the way to the back of the room, from the back of the room, back to the front, from the front to the back, from the side to the side, side to the side, to the side to the side. Until it filled the entire temple. And everybody's listening to this and they're like, whoa. Because <laughs> it's, it's not just the train that they're thinking about. It's kind of like, if that's the train, then go back up. Okay, come with me to the new Jerusalem, to heaven. Have you noticed this? We talk about the foundations, right? Made out of these, these 12 precious Precious uh, uh, stones, that's it. <laughs> Precious stones, right? We, we talk about what, what are the gates of the city made out of? Cut out of a solid pearl. You know, you take the dimensions that are given to us, each one of those pearls would not be able to fit into this room, right? And every time I talk about this, I think about the guy who said, I'd love to see the oyster, right? That, right? <laughs> pearls and cut out of us. okay. We, we get the foundation, we get the streets made of gold, clear as glass, right? We, 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 we get the gates and the foundation and the streets. We also talk a little bit about a, a river, and we talk about a tree that's in there. But if you notice in the description of Jerusalem, we're really not talking about life in, the, in, in heaven, are we? You know why? Because we're just talking about the streets you walk on. We're talking about the foundation. We're talking about looking at the walls and the gates from the outside because you cannot put into words... How wonderful this is going to be. But you know what? I want to try. So would you do this thought experiment with me? Let's say, I, I know I'm on dangerous ground here, but I want you to think politics with me for just a minute, okay? Just my estimation, people hate to talk about politics. I think one of the reasons people hate to talk about politics is because it strikes a chord. At some level, we all realize how important it is, right? And so it just, it just brings up some really deep feelings. So with great caution, I want you to think about politics with me for just a minute. Let's say we're, you know, this next election, everybody, even, even people who have a candidate that they just love, it, it's, it's my guess that even if you love a candidate, there's at least something about that candidate you wish you could change, right? Okay, here's the thought experiment. Let's say that we have the perfect candidate. You know, some person you've never met before, but they come on the scene, and everything they say is kind of like you're checking all your boxes. It's like, wow. I mean, this guy's got a perfect answer to everything that, I mean, he, uh, everything that I was looking for, and the stuff that I couldn't figure out, he figured it out, and the stuff I haven't even thought about before, he, man, this, I'm voting for this guy, right? You know, you're just all in because he's, just perfect guy, right? So dream with me, right? You know, this, this just thought experiment. And then the more you hear about this guy, every, every time you listen to a speech, every time he's interviewed, nobody's able to back him in a corner. He's always got the perfect answer, the kind of answers that you think, I wish I would have thought of that. You know, he's got the kind of answers that make people go silent. And, and everybody admits this guy's about as perfect as you can possibly be. Okay. It's still, it's, he's still in the ca campaign trail. And you find out he's come to Central Florida. And he's going to be over here in the fairgrounds in Cocoa, right? And somebody gives you tickets. And you're usually not one of these kind of people, but it's kind of like, man, this guy. Yeah, I, I want to go see this guy. So you get there and there's like, I don't know, 600,000 people turn out to, you know, they're, they're, I mean, overflow all over the place. They're just, they just want to see this guy. They want to listen to him. He does not disappoint. 
Just like every time you've heard him speak before, this time, you, I, I mean, you loved him, he was 100%, and now he's better. It's kind of like, man, he said more stuff I just didn't think of before. And, and it's kind of like your mind's stretching because it's like, and on the inside, it's like, man, maybe America, you know, maybe the whole world, the most powerful man on the planet, maybe there's real hope because, I mean, just on the inside, you get this feeling like, man, this is the guy, right? So after a speech, you know, thunderous applause, you're there, you're so glad that you, that you went out and you stood in the, in the mosh pit of hundreds of thousands of people, right? And as he's leaving, he's making his way through the crowd, and it, I don't know, he's a couple hundred feet over that way, and he looks across the crowd and he makes eye contact with you. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, he can't be looking at me. I mean, there's people all over the place. But it's kind of like, oh, no, he's looking at you. And it takes him several minutes, but he works his way through that crowd and he comes right up to you and he reaches out your hand. And you're like, I'm going to tell the grandkids about this, right? I'm going to shake his hand. And so you shake his hand and you're like, this is great, but that's not the end of it. He pulls you closer when he shakes, shakes your hand and he says, uh, he introduces himself and he says, tell me your name. You tell him your name. Are you married? Yeah. He tells the wife's name and kids and he asks a little bit about your family. It's like the world has stopped and he's really interested in you. And then he asks you a question. He says, what's your biggest concern in this election? What's your, what's your hope for America? And so, you, you know, off the top of your head, you just try to, you know, as best you can, explain what you're concerned about, what your hopes are. And he's listening. He's shaking his head as you're talking. He's looking you in the eye, and it's like, you know, this is like, pinch me. I, I must be sleeping, right? So uh, all this goes on, and, and it, it just felt like a really genuine conversation. And he thanks you with your name. And he goes on, and his entourage, the Secret Service, and everything, they take him off. And, and you're like telling everybody, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. You know, the soon president of the United States took interest in me. I had this conversation, shook his hand, I haven't washed my hands. You know, one of those kind of things, shook his hand. All that stuff, because you're just on cloud nine, right? Okay, election comes, he wins with 98.5% of the vote. <laughs> it's absolutely never happened before, right? And it's kind of like, but you're not surprised, because this guy is just, to your estimation, perfect be the next president, right? So he wins with this overwhelming majority. He hasn't taken office yet, and you get a certified letter in the mail. The certified letter, there are two first-class tickets for airline trip to Washington, D.C. There's also some information in there, and there's a card, a handwritten card from the next president of the United States, and he, and he mentions you by name, your wife, and your kids. He, he remembers it all. And he thanks you for the time that we met out there in the fairgrounds. And he mentions a couple of things that you said when you were talking. And he said, I just want you to come to Washington, D.C. and celebrate with me, right? And so along with the tickets, there's also some receipts. These receipts are for a tailor shop that you didn't even know existed in Brevard County. You go to this tailor shop, and these are the, like the best tailors ever. And they make you brand new clothing for your entire family. And you get to see the bill. It's all paid for. But the cost of the clothing was twice the cost of your car, right? It's like, I didn't know clothes cost that much, right? But it's kind of like, man, these are the best clothes I've ever had, right? So you've got, you got a new set of clothes. You've got all the expenses paid. They come and pick you up in a Bentley limousine to take you to the airport. You fly first class. You get there, you stay in a five-star. I mean, I mean, it's just just your wildest dreams, everything. You, you go, 
you're going to be a part of this celebration. You get to the, the, the big ball, the big celebration, right? Right before he takes office. And they're playing your favorite music. <laughs> you're eating food you didn't know existed before. It tastes so good. Are, are you going with me here? The music goods uh, is good. Your hotel experience, everything's just as perfect as it could be. But then the music stops and they start playing Hail to the Chief. That means he's going to walk into the room, right? And he walks into the room and he comes to the microphone and you stand up with everybody else because it's, it's like a dream come true. And when he comes to the microphone, he thanks everybody for their support. And then in the middle of his speech, everybody's just so excited, he stops and he says, you know what, I've met a lot of good people across this country, but there's this guy, his name's Willie. I want Willie to come up to the microphone right now. And he calls you out. And so you get, I mean, it's the experience of a lifetime. Now he's called you out in front of everybody. And so you make your way up to the front and you get on stage with him and he puts his arm around you and he talks to the whole crowd and he says, let me tell you a little bit about Willie. And he knows your life perfectly. And he says, this guy's such an encouragement to me. And I just want you to know it's some of his thoughts that inspired me to run for president of the United States. So you're there. I mean, time and time again, it's gotten better than you ever thought it could get. Listen, when Jesus tries to describe to us what heaven's going to be like, he usually uses the picture of a wedding feast. And the reason he uses the picture of a wedding feast is because in the first century, that was the biggest event of a lifetime. In fact, the only thing that took away from the greatness of a wedding feast in the first century was the amount of money the person had who put on the wedding feast. So when Jesus told the story, he had a king. You know what that meant? He had unlimited resources. If somebody who had unlimited resources was going to put on the event of a lifetime, that would be something fantastic that you'd want to go to. Well, if you got special invitation, if somebody stood out in the highways and byways and said, you're welcome to come in, you would come in. Because you know why? It would be the best food. It'd be the best entertainment. It would be the best experience of a lifetime. Not only that, you get free clothes. They, they clothed you with the right kind of clothing. And when you came in and you're experiencing this great thing, here's part of the story that sometimes we miss. In Luke, the 12th chapter, it says, at this great celebration, the master himself, the king, will take off his robe and will put on the apron and will come up to you and act as a servant to make you the guest of all. What in the world is God trying to communicate to us? I think he's trying to communicate to us whatever it is you have dreamed up in your mind, it's not enough. It's going to be better and greater and it's going to last forever. Because you made one choice in your life that counted more than any other choice. You picked the right king. But there are too many people who have it. And so I'm just going to ask your favor when you come to the table and remember how Jesus died to make all this possible. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, you proclaim his death until he comes again. And you know why? Because everybody who hasn't made him king needs to make him king. We're his ambassadors. Would you bow your head? Would you pray? When you're ready, would you come to the table?